Welcome to Latinos Who Thrive, the only podcast that celebrates the extraordinary achievements and resilience of the Latino community. I'm your host, Victor Escalante, and I'm thrilled to embark on this empowering journey with all of you listeners. In a world where stories often go untold or unheard, this podcast aims to shine a spotlight on the triumphs, dreams, and experiences of Latinos from all walks of life. Each episode brings you inspiring conversations with extraordinary individuals who have defied odds, broken barriers, and achieved remarkable success in their respective fields. Our mission is simple yet profound, to amplify the voices and narratives of Latinos who have not only thrived but have also created a lasting impact in their communities and beyond. Through these engaging conversations, we explore the diverse paths that our guests have taken, the challenges they have faced, and the lessons they have learned along the way. From artists, entrepreneurs, activists, to scientists, educators, and leaders, Latinos Who Thrive introduces you to a rich tapestry of stories that reflect the strength, resilience, and vibrant spirit of our community. Each week, we delve into the struggles they have encountered, the barriers they have overcome, and the pivotal moments that have shaped their journey toward success. But this podcast isn't just about highlighting accomplishments. It's about creating a space for honest and inspiring conversations that delve into the complexities of being Latino in today's world. We discuss the cultural heritage that have shaped our guest identities, the values that have guided them, and the importance of representation and inclusivity in their respective fields. Whether you're a member of the Latino community seeking relatable role models or someone interested in learning about the diverse experiences of Latinos, Latinos Who Thrive is here to inform, inspire, and ignite conversations that transcend boundaries. So join us on this captivating journey as we celebrate the untold stories of Latinos who have thrived against all odds. Together, we shed light on the accomplishments of our community, celebrate our shared heritage, and inspire future generations to dream big and to reach for the stars. Thank you for making Latinos Who Thrive one of America's top-rated podcasts. Get ready to be motivated and inspired. This week, we have special guest Nicolás Humberto Repeto, who is an Argentinian-American television film and concert composer who has uplifted many projects with his diverse musical voice. Most recently, Nicolás composed original music and conducted the Los Angeles Finest Musicians at Walt Disney Concert Hall as part of the unveiling of two half-million-dollar watches from the Omega Watch Company. He also wrote an original score for the feature documentary, A Run For More, which we talk in depth, which was broadcast on PBS on May 15, 2023. A Run For More is directed by Pulitzer Prize winning director Ray Whitehouse. The film chronicles the story of Frankie Gonzalez Wolf, a transgender woman running for city council in San Antonio, Texas. So let's get on with it. And now we have Nicolás Repeto with us. Nicolás, welcome to Latinos Who Thrive. Hi, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. We're very excited to have you as a guest on today's show because you are the only virtuoso that we've ever had on, on the show. And that entails a whole nother level of caliber uh, for this interview, which I had to do extensive preparation for. So tell us, uh, Nicolás, uh, where are you originally from? I am originally from, I was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina. My parents moved us uh, to Miami, Florida when I was five years old. 
I was raised in in Florida, but I still have memories of being in Argentina and you know my mom listening to music and all these things and being around because we lived in a a quinta, which is like you know where all the farm farm animals are. So out in the country, in a place called Tandil, which is like about an hour, almost two hours south of Buenos Aires. Um, but after that, we moved to uh, Miami, Florida, and I was raised there. Went to school there. They put me in a ESOL thing to get rid of uh, our accents and stuff like that, and basically became Americanized. And because when I go back to Argentina, they always make fun of me. You sound like a Yankee and stuff like that. Because uh, my Argentine accent is a mix of like Spanish and Cuban, and because living in Miami, it's like you get all this, all these mixes together. So, unfortunately, us immigrants who are completely assimilated to America are people with uh, with no country because we're not completely accepted here, and we're not completely accepted uh, where we come from because again, they see the assimilation and they view us as as somewhat being uh, less than authentic uh, yes. of our native uh, country. Yes, it's a, you, you don't fit, you're not either Latino enough or you're not Ameri too American enough. So it's like this limbo area you're Correct. In, be in between. So I found it fascinating because it, it, you know, you try to, in a way you can like straddle both sides in a way for, for certain things. Um, but yeah, sometimes you feel like you want to fit in more, but it's tough. So it's one of those situations that, you, I mean, I still grapple to this day, one of those things that, you know, that affects me as an artist. Um, but in a way, it's also empowering because you, you can draw from these different wells from in order to become, uh, you know, to influence your, your writing and stuff like that. Sure. So what initially sparked your interest in music composition and how did you begin your journey as a composer? Well, it, it all started when I was in in Miami as a as a kid in elementary school. I was I had a music teacher named Miss Love, which is a great name. I loved her name. It was she was very nice and sweet. And uh, you know, I started singing in choir and playing instruments like piano, recorder, and learning about like how music works, like the the notes and the construction. Um, so I got my foundation through her. It was great. I really enjoyed it. And after that, we fast forward to like middle school and high school. I picked up the violin and then started getting serious about playing the violin. So I was immersed in classical music. And then in high school, I started playing in orchestras. And then I started like dabbling because I had a quartet. We would play like tangos and, and Mozart and all these different things, um, even for parties and stuff like that. So I started playing like kind of professionally in high school. and. I started writing for them, you know, things here and there, just testing things out, um, which sounded terrible at the time because I was, you know, starting off. I was like, this is, I thought it was great, but, you know, obviously my teacher's like, oh, you need more work, you know, you got to work on this. As time went on, I grew. And then in college, I took more classes about composition and orchestration. And that's when like things started clicking. And I knew that I wanted to pursue this like professionally because I really love how some composers when I was playing their music, they had like specific notation and specific descriptions of what they wanted. And I, in a way, I, I love kind of like telling musicians what to do <laughs> in my music. So that's how I kind of like became interested in that. And then obviously I took more classes and learned about orchestration, which then kind of opened up my palette in terms of what I can write for, like strings, woodwinds, brass, percussion, piano, voice. Um, all this stuff helped basically... Um, gave me all the tools I needed to pursue, pursue composition. And then um, 
to then I started teaching for a while. I started teaching middle school orchestra. And then I started getting like paid gigs with composition. I started doing jingles back in Florida through a great company called uh, BSG Media. And I did some commercials. And it was really nice when I got paid in one weekend more than I made as a teacher. So I was like, oh, this is this is nice. I made like, I don't know, $5,000 in a weekend. And it was something that I've never, uh, even as a musician, like playing, I never made that much money before. So I was like, this is something that I might be interested in. Because also, you know, you got to use computers and to create the music needed. And then I, from there, I pulled all my resources to create the music. So really, I started jingles were where I started kind of being more uh, professional in terms of like what I was doing with composition. You followed the well, money when it came to breaking into the advertising uh, lane. And uh, talk to us about uh, fast forward to your uh, compositions for Omega watches. Oh, right. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, the working in advertising has helped a lot. Um, yeah. So fast forward to Omega. Omega was um, I got the gig through a friend from high school, actually. She's a producer. She needed a composer and a conductor. And I, you know, since I knew how to do all those things, I, I said, sure, I, I can help. And we were going to do this at Walt Disney Concert Hall here in Los Angeles. So basically, I had to write new music because Omega Watches was um, about to debut these two half million dollar watches. And I, to be honest, never heard of Omega before, or maybe I did in passing, but I never. And I was like, wow, this is a big deal. So um, I worked on creating music that kind of encompass the watches themselves. They were kind of, it's like basically looking at a Stradivarius violin. It's this beautiful work of art that has wood and creates these chimes. So they wanted the music to be very um, symphonic. So they were going to pay for an orchestra and then I had to write the music. So the music had to be elegant and exquisite and um, all these things that kind of describe the watches. So the day came, we rehearsed and, and then we had to t also... Uh, they were unveiling it with these like um, this giant veil that pulled up and you see the watches. So everything had to be like choreographed with the music. And yeah, it turned out great. I think that was my first time playing a concert at Disney Concert Hall with all my music. So it was a, basically a dream come true. And I think about it at this moment in time and I'm thinking, wow, that was, I was very lucky. So a great opportunity. That is quite a work of art. And I'm going to have your uh, bio uh, link in the show notes so that our listeners can go. Uh, listen to that composition to experience it because it is truly a work of art. Thank but you. I digress. The tango music is a staple of Argentina. To what extent did your parents influence your growth in that particular genre? Uh, I'd say that my mother is the one that listened to a lot more tangos. And she was always playing it at home, even like just ballads in Spanish overall. So I would listen to, you know, Carlos Gardel at home, Por Una Cabeza, and uh, Aníbal Troilo. Uh, she also uh, would listen to, you know, Celia Cruz, stuff like this um, when I was growing up. So all those styles I absorbed and kind of later on infused it in my, in my own style. But mainly my mom, she was the one that uh, would listen to this stuff. And I would just, you know, I would ask her questions. Oh, what does this sound like? And where did you hear this? And she would tell me the stories. And she would always also dance with me too. It was like this thing that we we did. So really enjoyed those moments. Uh, my dad would was 
he would listen to music as well, but he was more you know into the hard working all the time. But he's the one that took me to the music lessons, so I have to give him credit for that. He he's the one that drove us to the conservatory and and you know helped pay for everything, and he worked a lot. So I'm always thankful for uh for their support in the music portion. Because when I told them I wanted to do music, you know they were like eh. But then when they saw kind of like that I was serious about it and I was practicing like you know eight hours a day on violin and stuff like this, they were like, oh, okay, yeah. So he's he means business. So let's help him out. So let's drill down a little bit more and talk to us about the musical influences and how they shaped your unique style and approach to composition. What can you tell us about that? There's so many. <laughs> um, since I was classically trained, I I listened to a lot of classical music. So I started. I don't know, with Vivaldi, Bach, Haydn, Mozart, all the the big ones. Um, later on, I got into um, Mahler, which is a big German composer who, which is the one I was playing in college. He was the one that would write all the descriptions and the music. And I was really fascinated how he really wanted everyone to do exactly what he what he wrote. That was that was the one that piqued my curiosity. So then later I, I learned, you know, Stravinsky, Prokofiev. Um, and then I got into Spanish composers like Gina uh, de Falla, Argentine composers like Ginastera, and um, then we have also Revueltas and Villalobos. So basically all the masters from the past. That was my main influence. Um, later on, I expanded to like people like Philip Glass and Steve Reich, um, and even modern composers like John Adams and Michael Abels, Cliff Eidelman. Um, and, and like I said before, like Celia Cruz, I even listened to the Beatles, Pink Floyd, uh, Lady Gaga and Bjork and all these. I mean, I, I, my main thing is I try to listen to a lot of a lot of music so then I can pull from these little buckets in case I need to write in that particular style. So all these influences help find my voice. Did you ever play with your famous compatriot, uh, Di Blasio? Oh, no, never had the opportunity to play with him now. But yeah, I... Uh, and also, um, I did listen to a lot of Pimpinella, which is this duo that my mom used. I don't know if you've heard of them before. Yes, I have. So she would listen to a lot of that as well. Now that I remember, now that we're calling, recalling things from the past. Um, so kind of like that emotional kind of thing was always in, in my family. <laughs> Brings back good memories. Does it take a visceral person to become a great composer? What would you say? You have to have like basically an understanding of different styles, but then like, being one with your emotions helps because you can draw from those experiences to help write the music and bring it to life. Um, I remember um, I wrote a piece of music um, once when I was in college based on somebody I loved or, you know, I thought I was into, you know, so I wrote like a little love song. I kind of drew from that experience. So having something to draw upon, something inspirational helps for sure. Yeah. What are the passions that have influenced your your composing when it's for personal pleasure, not commissioned compositions? Oh, right. I like nature a lot. So I I wrote a piece based on um, I went to this place called Iguazu Falls in Argentina, where it borders Paraguay, uh, Brazil and Argentina. And um, it was this beautiful waterfall. And I was taken by just like the grandiosity and the beauty of it and just the power of the water too. So I wrote this piece and um, which I started sketching the idea way before. And then it just happened to be a commission later. 
but I did the idea before because I wanted to, I was going to write a piece about this and opportunity presented itself so that I finished it. But usually nature is a, is a big deal. Um, I just finished a piece recently, like uh, a few days ago, based on a sunset I saw at Malibu here in, in LA. Um, so I draw a lot from nature, um, being outdoors. Usually I write my best music when it's like overcast and rainy. My husband always loves the sun and being sunny. I was like, oh, no, for me, I like rain and overcast and, and stuff like that. To, it just puts me in this mood for some reason. I don't know. It's um, something that works for me. I once read an article that Mozart was uh, inspired by nature also, by walking uh, in the country. So uh, it's interesting that nature has the same effect upon you. Yeah, it's so many composers. I remember like even Mahler and Handel, they all go to the, like, they used to go to these country homes. Yes. Uh, and, and just be surrounded by nature. And then, you know, some, they wrote their best pieces when they're out in the fresh air, you know, smelling the trees and, and just being there. It's, it's one of those things that I guess it's universal for some people. You know, it's just you can draw upon that, which is nice. So your emotions and your composition muse is stirred by heavy, overcast, dark and <laughs> gloomy scenes. Your music has been described as a fusion of different genres and styles. So how do you go about incorporating all these different elements into your music? It's kind of like putting together a puzzle, um, especially for a commission work like a film score or an orchestra commissions me to write something, I have to, again, draw from this well of different things. And it's kind of like kaleidoscope. You kind of put it together and see if it works. And sometimes it does and sometimes it doesn't, you know, but I do have, um, I do try to combine, for instance, my, my thing now is using a lot of um, tango kind of like ideas. Like I was, I wrote a piece called Chicharra, which has like tango elements so it almost has a dance feel but then it has like classical elements as well in it other times i wrote like um an edm score for a film and i had to draw from my time in miami where i used to go to all these edm concerts and clubs um and then create something also emotional sometimes edm music um is just like you know a lot of banging boom 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 stuff like that um but this one had to be not only that because it, there were like dance scenes but also um, emotional component because of characters that had to showcase their feelings. And, um, and that movie was called Angel of Anywhere. I don't know, when I did that, the director, you know, really enjoyed the score and, and it kind of worked for the film. So then, um, you know, so when they give you that kind of approval, then you go on and, and you continue. But usually I draw from, I try and draw from different little wells that I've learned from my experience. And um, that's why I listen to Again, a variety of music to, to be ready to write in, in those styles. So having all these wells and buckets, uh, what do you hope to achieve through the blending of all of these different elements and the genres that you compose for? I think when you do all this stuff as an artist, it's like you try, I mean, the ultimate goal is to find your own voice um, as a creator. You know, it's, um, you use inspiration from the past i mean that's why a lot of composers stand on the shoulders of giants from the past create something new and um and unique for the project that you're working on or even for yourself you know it's basically i think it's to find your own voice that's as my... a composer when can you identify uh, the epic or the year or or the time that you found your own voice 
to where it was totally originally your voice that was coming through your music? Uh, hmm, that's a hard one. I think in the last few years, I would say from 2019 on, <laughs> it's I started feeling, um, I remember I did a movie called The Sound of Identity, and it was about another trans figure, uh, a trans opera singer, actually. And that movie, kind of like, I was able to draw my own experience um, as well, because this subject in the documentary was basically allowing people to follow her around to showcase a performance. Um, and for the music, I was, you know, I didn't hold back in terms of who I was. I, I wrote in a very like neoclassical style, which was very brand new to me. And the director even said, yeah, I trust your instinct, go with it. So I was, um, I wrote stuff that I, in a way was challenged me as an artist and I wanted to kind of go all in and we were going to have an orchestra recorded. So I knew we were going to have live musicians. So I'm like, you know what, let me just write music that these musicians can really dig into and get involved emotionally. And um, I was really pleased it turned out. I felt like it was my most personal work. So let me give our listeners the context of what we're talking about here. You are the composer for a soundtrack for the documentary run for more based upon the life story or the or the history of a political candidate that ran for city council that is a a trans person a trans woman in san antonio which is my old district where i used to live in so i watched the documentary and uh, it's really moving uh to see her story and to see how in today's day and age there is still so much hatred uh, for trans people. And even here in Texas, it's like we have some of the most unfriendliest policy makers for trans people. But don't get me started. Uh, I listened as I was watching the documentary for your music, and I got so wrapped up in the storyline that I forgot about the music. And the music is so subtle that you don't even realize that it's there until you consciously stop to listen for the melody or or your emotions are being tugged at through the music to really enhance the story. Full disclosure, about the only time that I completely became aware of the music was when, when she was raped in the uh, story. I listened to the deep emotions that are conveyed in, in the music. So that's what we're talking about here, friends, is uh, Nicolás uh, wrote this music for this documentary. And I'm going to uh, put that in the show notes also for you to go see it. It's on PBS KLRN uh, San Antonio uh, Music Station for uh, Public TV, where you can uh, watch the documentary. And your music is also available that was recently re-released on Apple. Yes, it's uh well it's available everywhere on digital platforms. So Apple, Spotify, YouTube Music, everywhere basically. Okay. And we will also have that in the show notes. So let's go there and uh, drill down on that. How did you become the composer for this documentary, uh Nicolas? In this kind of business, you um for these kind of jobs, they're not really advertised on, you know, on a newspaper or somewhere on a list. So you have to meet people and and get to know a lot of people. So, met the editor of the film. Her name is Katrina Devera, 
in this film festival called Sundance back in 2018, I think we met. And I met her with uh, another editor named Angela Pires, and who are both from Texas. They live in Austin. And they were there for promoting their film, and I was there promoting another film I worked on. And we just hung out, got to know each other, and you know, had a good time. And we hit it off as friends. And fast forward to, I think, 2021, and I get a, an email from Angela saying that, yeah, Nicholas, I, I kind of recommended your name to this director who's doing a film, and, and Katrina is the editor on the film, and go talk to him, see if you're interested. And the director was Ray Whitehouse. of the. He's the director of A Run For More. And we talked. I also talked to Katrina, who's working on the edit. And basically, we, I told him, he asked me for my input on, on the film. And I saw a few cuts of it. And I was really interested. I was interested in Frankie's story, basically. And, and then Ray and I hit an off as well. And, um, and after that, I wrote some music to kind of to demonstrate what I was thinking, you know, uh, we came up with a theme, hope and struggle, and I presented that to him in a, in I think a ten-minute suite of music, and he dug it, and then you know I was signed on, so I was really happy. You are considered as one of the top composers in the trance uh, movie music genre. Why do you think that it takes a a trance person to really uh, do service to the cause to the uh, to the voice of, of this community. I'm a gay Latino, so I think being uh, part of that community helped. In my life, I've experienced people call me names and, and stuff like that growing up, and I, f I feel very connected to their stories. So, you know, being in that situation helps kind of write the emotional music that they're feeling on, on screen, you know, like with all the stuff that, that is happening with all the anti-trans laws and stuff like this occurring, especially in Texas. Um, I felt, in a way, it's like fitting into a glove. I felt uh, comfortable. Aside from that, it's also a human story. You know, it's, it's, you have the human connection and the emotional component. So I think that part of it is, is kind of like universal to everybody. You know, everyone feels sadness, depression, you know, happiness. Um, so all those are kind of universal truths that we all hold. So I, I think um, music is a great way to convey those emotions. You're listening to Latinos Who Thrive with special guest Nicolás Humberto Repeto. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsor. ¿Estás buscando el auténtico sabor de México aquí en Houston? No busques más que Fonda Santa Rosa, el restaurante que ha estado sirviendo deliciosa comida casera mexicana por más de 10 años. Desde fajitas de carne, mole poblano, puntas de res al chipotle, puntas de res a la mexicana, plato chipaneco, chuletas de cerdo en salsa verde, y mucho más Fonda Santa Rosa tiene algo para todos. Así que ya sea que estés buscando una comida abundante con familiares y amigos o una celebración, Ven a Fonda Santa Rosa y experimenta los sabores de México aquí mismo en nuestro propio comedor. Visítanos hoy en Facebook o Instagram para ver toda la selección de platillos. Fonda Santa Rosa, donde cada comida es una fiesta. And now we return you to Latinos Who Thrive with special guest Nicolás Humberto Repeto. 
Is it fair to say that you tapped into some of your own personal history in composing this music because you identified with the storyline? Every time you write a piece of music, you have to keep in mind you're writing music for a film and for a it's a project because this was a commission project. You know, it's the director is kind of in a film is kind of like the boss and he has a vision, um, especially Ray. He had a vision of what he wanted. With those parameters in mind, you also, as an artist, infuse your own ideas in your own voice. So in a way, it was a collaboration between what he wanted, what the film wanted, and what I saw would work musically. So it's it's basically like this triangle of collaboration, because the film also tells you what it wants, right? You can't just fit things. In, it's like a puzzle. Right. You can't just fit a, a square uh, peg into like a round box. So you have to kind of like keep it... Um, kind of have to use those three things to kind of guide you. And I think, uh, and also in this case, Katrina also helped us because she was working on the edit. So it was a true co collaboration between myself, Ray, and Katrina, who, you know, as we were working, I was writing music, they were also changing the picture and it was, you know, getting tighter and what you see right now. Um, so it's one of those collaborations that really um, enhances the final product. Did you find yourself in that flow state to where the music is writing itself through you? Yes, I think once I, I got the once you have the themes and like the, the foundation of what you're going to write, then that's the fun part where then you get to kind of expand on those ideas and get experimental. Because I remember in the scene that you were talking about where she experiences the rape and, and the trauma, I was I wanted to try. For that section, I wrote the struggle theme, but then I, I wanted to, um, instead of writing it only for piano, then I kind of used violin and viola, which I played here in my studio. I took fragments of that and then kind of did, I kind of used them in unconventional ways where I kind of took the sound that you hear of the violin and the viola and like lowered it by like 10 octaves and then kind of put it through this like synth uh, thing that changed the pitch and then changed the quality of it. And it created this like darker like pad which gives it this eerie feel. So it's that idea that it's those experiments that allow you to be become creative. So so just to give the listeners the context of what we're talking about here is there's a scene in the documentary where uh, Frankie is coming out of a uh, club where he was performing. Uh, she, I'm sorry. And there's three thugs that approach her and say, if you want to uh, be a woman, you're going to be treated like a woman. And that's when they proceed to rape her. And that's what we're describing here is how the music and the way that you arranged it uh, ran parallel with the story of what is being said in, in the documentary. Again, this is a work of art. To be able to, to do something like that uh, with such uh, exquisite attention that the average listener is not going to fully appreciate unless they know the real story behind the story. Right. Another thing is for scenes like that, that are very, very sensitive. I mean, the music can't be, you know, in your face. It has to be very subdued and, and kind of like in the background, but it's still there to kind of nudge you along emotionally, you know what I mean? To give you a sense of dread and in a way, you know, because she's describing this horrible moment in her life and the music is just there to kind of cushion you a little bit, but also pull you along emotionally so it's one of those things that i mean as a composer those are you know the director gives you a lot of real estate to work with and that's one of those moments but again you have to be it's very subtle you can't like you have to know how to balance 
all those things because you have the image, the voiceover, right? The narration, right? And then the music. Talk to us some more about your creative process. How do you typically approach a new composition from the initial idea to the finished piece? So writing a, a piece of music for a film uh, is quite different than writing a piece of music, a concert music, because uh, now I'll explain. I'll explain both. Um, in a concert piece that's going to be played like on stage for with an orchestra or something, you have um, it's just you and the orchestra. There's no limitations basically. So you can write from a point of you know, it's only the limit is your imagination. I remember when I wrote the piece Escenas de Iwasu, that was just, you know, me drawing from inspiration from my experience traveling to Iwasu Falls. And then I had to limit myself. I had to create my own limitations. Everything can go haywire. There's so much to draw from. So I, I kind of, you self-impose limits to help you create structure and, and form in the music. But for a film, writing a film score is different because you, the film dictates the form you have like these limits of what you can write and also what the director wants, like in terms of the music. Um, it starts off, for instance, we sit down together at this thing called a spotting session and we watch the film together. We have a conversation basically saying, we want music to start here and we want music to, to end there. Sometimes, in, for, I remember when we sat down to watch the film, the Run For More, when it was in its early stages, it can take you know, an hour and a half film watching it together with the director can take, you know, three hours because you stop, you talk, you want the music to start here. You want you, then you have a little debate about, well, I think it should do this because Frankie's showing this emotion and then we want the audience to feel this. And it's this back and forth. And then um, that basically dictates what the music's going to do. The picture gives you the limitations. Um, so you have to kind of, especially in a documentary, you have to learn to, um, as a composer, kind of work around the dialogue because, you know, people are speaking and then the music can't be like up here, it has to be under here and weave in and out of what the dialogue is. So it's a lot of dodging things, but also supporting and then getting out of the way and stuff like that. So it's, that's why experience helps in this regard, because especially documentaries, because it's a different kind of animal. To date, how many movies have you composed for? I believe 65, I think. Wow, that's a lot. Yes. That is quite a bit. I did, yeah. It's in my early early ones it was a lot of student films and like, you know, passion projects for for people. I it was just because I wanted to get experience, get my feet wet writing and and getting used to getting used to all the my computer and and all the uh sounds that I have on my computer because that that also takes a lot of it's kind of like playing an instrument, learning how to compose using your computer and and then um Gradually, those student projects graduated to, you know, more paid projects, bigger films. And I think by the time I did Sound of Identity uh, back in 2019, we had a, a live orchestra um, that the production paid for and I was able to conduct. So, I mean, that was it took a bit of time because, you know, it's like seven years to get to that point. But little by little, each project, I learned a lot and you get to, you know, as you get better. You know, you get quality, more quality projects and things keep growing. So I've been, I mean, I've been happy the way the trajectory has been going. So it's been great. Are you obsessive compulsive about music? <laughs> yes. In a way, I um, like if I have um, everything in a way has to be perfect for me <laughs> um, because, you know. Even uh, telling the musicians how they need <laughs> to play. <laughs> yes. Yes, I literally, I mean, I have to be on top of everything because, I mean, in the end, it's your name on right. the picture, right? So, and some of these these films, I remember I, I in this film, I had I had a music team that helped me 
when I was busy with other things and when I was working on, on, as they were changing the picture, we had, um, you know, I didn't have time to go back and fix or do other cues, which, uh, which are other tracks in the, in the soundtrack. So I had, I brought on some people to take my ideas and my themes and, and kind of massage it and create those sections of the film, the music for those sections of the film while I worked on something else. So, yeah, I mean, I have to kind of oversee everything. It's like you're a producer and you have to see that they're kind of matching what you want. And um, so, yeah, I have my hands a lot into into what I do. And uh, that's kind of like my process. And and in a way, I, I also train people how it works, how the business works, because eventually they're going to want to do their own thing. And, you know, it's a good, good learning experience for everybody. What would you distill your success to? What are the factors that have led to your success as a highly accomplished uh, composer and musician? Other than true dedication and, and passion to pretty much eat, breathe, uh, sleep, <laughs> and just basically live for music, writing, and playing. Tell us, uh, for a layperson that, that is listening to this conversation, and if they are unsure about whether they have found their calling in life, what advice would you give them? That attracts your attention and it brings you joy and happiness. And you feel like this. I had a friend that once told me this uh, at one of my, uh, we had a party here in LA and I had a, was talking to a friend who another, he's a visual artist. And he's like, you know, whenever I work on a project, I get this like fire in my belly. And because I'm excited about what I'm doing. And if that, if you feel that bubbling inside and that excitement, every time you work in this, in your chosen career, then that's a good signal that, you know, this is your calling. Um, for me, it's every time I write music or every time I hear my music performed by an orchestra or by, you know, I get this sense of joy and, and like how lucky I am to be doing this because for a long time I was thinking, um, you know, Am I happy? Because I was, you know, I, I did everything. I was played violin in orchestras. I taught music. Um, and I didn't feel what I feel now, which is like this sense of joy and happiness and being able to share that with my loved ones. And I don't know, it's just a sense of, of accomplishment, um, a different kind of sense of accomplishment. It's like, I feel like right at home doing this. So I want to ask you about something here. It's been said that Every great success had to master the boring elements of their craft. What was the boring elements that you mastered to become a virtuoso in life? Um, when I was playing, I remember when I was learning violin, I had to practice. And sometimes I did not want to practice at all. It's like, you know, but um, it's one of those things that like, it's like eating your vegetables. You know, you're supposed to. And... <laughs> Sometimes you don't want to eat that piece of broccoli because it's disgusting. But, you know, if you add a little bit of cheese on top, then, you know, you can you might be tempted to eat it. Same thing here. It's like little by little, as I was practicing, I, I noticed improvements and things and and got better. The same thing in composition. The more I wrote, you know, I um, I once read a book with by Ian Malcolm, who, who said that you have to accomplish, you know, 10,000 hours of something to become a master. I had that in mind because I spoke to a composer here in LA when I was first starting off named Ron Jones. And he's like, read that book and do the work 10,000 hours. And then, you know, you'll, you can, you'll feel accomplished. And so I did that and it was, it was true. It's like, you feel like you're ready to tackle anything. So, you know, you have to put in the work. Unfortunately, it's one of those things that you can't just sit back and get it from osmosis. <laughs> right. 
So tell us, many composers draw inspiration from various sources, and we've already learned some of your sources for inspiration. What are some of the most unexpected or unconventional sources of inspiration that have influenced your compositions? What are the surprising, there... unexpected, yeah. unconventional sources? I remember when I, I was writing a, a horror movie once. <laughs> writing music for horror movies, I decided to go to a, a junkyard and take a bow from a cello and a recorder, something to record the sounds with. And I went into the junkyard, started recording all these different sounds from metal hubcaps to like these metal spikes. It's a junkyard, so you can see a lot of metal things. And I found inspiration from all the sounds from there. And then I, I took all those sounds back to my studio and kind of like created basically a new instrument that I used for this horror film. And um, the same thing when I was teaching, I recorded my students saying creepy things and uh, the orchestra students also playing weird things. And I took those sounds and created instruments out of that. So unconventional things, I got these this palette of like, different instruments to choose from. It's those things that also attract me to compose because you can create your own instruments out of weird things. And that's probably the most unconventional thing. And also for a film I did recently, another kind of spooky film, I went into a parking structure here in LA late at night so I wouldn't get caught and started playing violin and recorded weird sounds because I love the sound coming from the parking structure. It was like this big reverb echoing chamber Sure. And I took that back to the studio and created some interesting sounds. So, you know, I like to kind of like, you know, filmmakers like to kind of film guerrilla style. Sometimes I, I write music that way, too. My <laughs> mind goes to uh, the CD that Billy Joel did uh, when he took uh, all of the recording equipment and musicians to, uh, to record in an old abandoned gristmill. Somehow, you know, he was deeply inspired. And I'm sure, like you said, the, the acoustics in that old building with the rock uh, walls and everything must have uh, really had uh, quite an effect on uh, Billy Joel. Let me ask you something. Uh, I watched the documentary of the Beatles. Did you watch that? No, not yet. That's on my list. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to get your take on it because uh, they went through in the documentary, something of which you're describing, to where they're just experimenting with all different kinds of sounds and music writing and instrument playing and orchestra uh, being used. I'm just fascinated by the creative atmosphere and how that kind of distills into works of art. Artists, you can create that kind of stuff. It's amazing. Yes. Collaboration is a significant aspect of the music industry. Have you had any notable collaborations with other artists or musicians? And how have these experiences impacted your creative process? A lot of musicians that I've collaborated with here in LA have, you know, have played in different film scores. I remember um, when I first started, one of my films that I used for um, one of the scores I wrote for a film here in LA called Odin Blood, I used musicians that played on Star Trek, um, films back in the day from a composer named Jerry Goldsmith and um, a lot of string players that played there. Um, I had a, a friend named Jennifer Biggs Walton who played on that score. And then I used uh, some percussionists, one individual named uh, MB Gordy, who played on a lot of Battlestar Galactica and, and, and different scores here in town. So a lot, of, a lot of musicians with a lot of 
history um, here in Los Angeles from the golden, you know, from like 30 years ago. And, and they're still playing, which are, they're very inspirational. But as a violinist, I also played with, um, I didn't really collaborate, but I played on a concert, Andrea Bocelli, which was wonderful. Sure. Um, I, I played with him. I mean, I used to watch him when I was a kid on PBS. Wow. I was literally like 10 years old and I was like, wow, I love this music. And, you know, cause my, I would watch it. I was like the, probably the only kid in my house who would watch it. Um, I said, it would, wouldn't it be cool to play one day with, and then fast forward to like, I think it was 2017. Um, I played the Dolby theater, a concert, you know, and he was singing, uh, singing there and he sang, can't help falling in love with you. And it was like this beautiful arrangement. I, I was, I, I had to pinch myself. I was like, wow, he's, he sounds even more amazing live. He's such a great artist. And um, I also played on um, another orchestra with Dead Mouse, which is an, an EDM artist. We played at the Will Turn. Um, we collaborated basically um, his, on his new album called Where's the Drop? And um, that was another big moment. And I think we also played on, I played on the score for a documentary, the OJ Simpson documentary that won an Oscar back in the day, I think 2016. Interesting. Uh, we played on that. So as a musician, I, I got to work in the orchestras that, that got to play. Have you uh, ever played or worked uh, with the famous opera singer Angela Giorgio? No, no, did not. Only whenever I get called to play as, as a musician here in LA. I, luckily, I didn't get the chance. Your compositions have been performed by renowned orchestras and ensembles. What's it like for you to hear your music uh, come to life by professional musicians? And how does that feel to see your work resonate with the audience? Man, that's it's like the best analogy I have is like seeing a, your child walk the first time. It's like such an amazing because you write this piece of music, you don't know how it's going to. Oh, sorry. You don't know how it's going to sound, uh, how the audience is going to react to it. I mean, as a composer, you know, in your head what it's going to sound like. But then the musicians bring it, basically bring it to life. They they add their own, you know, human twist to it because you're hearing in your head and, and then they kind of add this power and emotion and intensity. The conductor also adds his or her like twist to it, their own musicality, their own humanity. And it just, it's such a wonderful feeling. I mean, I remember... I had my piece of Senesu performed here recently by my friend um, Bruce Kiesling, who conducted the Vesalia Symphony. And he took it each time it gets performed, it's a different kind of feel. So he took it a different way, and all the colors kind of were brought out differently. And I was like, wow! So it's a new ex every time I hear a piece, it's a new experience because there's something there's something new about it because of the the performance and what they put into it. Are there any themes or messages that you strive to convey through your music? If so, what are they and how do you express them in your compositions? When I write a piece for a film, I'm for, for a film score, I'm trying to convey basically what the film wants me to convey. It's whatever emotion we want the audience to feel for that, for that character or for that subject. Like you explained to us, there are certain parameters that you have to stay within in order to not dominate messaging, but to basically uh, play harmony to the visual and whatever voiceover that you're playing to. Is that a fair assessment? Definitely, yeah. It's something that you have to kind of, again, it's a balance of everything and you want to make sure that the music has its moment to shine, but then the movie also, the subject matter, the dialogue, the cinematography also shines. So it's kind of, it's a balancing act 
of trying to convey all those emotions. But, you know, sometimes directors in a film give you like a lot of space to do that. You know, they want you to to write something. They give you this, the space. Sometimes pictures don't have that enough enough space to do that. Some directors do. Like Ray, I remember and there was one particular scene in the film when Frankie is driving and it's it shows shots of San Antonio at night. And there's a shot where it starts off with this rack focus shot where everything's out of focus and all of a sudden it comes into focus. So the music there started like very quietly and softly. And then I had a chance to, had time to bring in the struggle theme on the piano. And she had little bits of dialogue. So then I weaved out of that and it worked beautifully because he gave me the space to do that. And, you know, that's, that's always like when you have space, when a director gives you real estate like that, you have to either take advantage of it you know, to kind of infuse it with your own voice. I remember that scene. There's a soft uh, lens effect yes. that is used, and then it comes sharper into focus to where you see the, the steering wheel and controls on vehicle. Either she is a passenger, I don't remember, or she was driving. I think she was driving, yeah. And I, okay. my, my thing is I wanted to get into her mind because of that moment, Yes, you know, her state of mind, which is like, why are they knocking down my signs? You know, right. is it? What's going on? So Yes. What part of this project did you personally identify with in, in the movie uh, Run For More? I think uh, the, the family aspect I really identified with because she had the support of her family. It's something that I've always had growing up with my family. You know, um, when my dad was still alive, he, um, you know, he, he did a lot for us. So I, I really appreciate what he did. And now my mom, she's always been a great supporter of my my music too. And when I told her about this film, she she really um, was overjoyed to to know that it was from a you know a Latino subject trying to run for office. So it's one of those things like overcoming the obstacles that you have in life kind of creates something amazing. So the family aspect and also Frankie running for office to give others an opportunity to um, to shine, you know, a seat at the table is what also uh, it was very inspiring about this project. I remember a scene uh, in the documentary that said that if you're not invited to the table, bring your own chair. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. Which there's a lot of truth to that uh, with Latinos not uh, having uh, an open uh, invitation to come to the table. Right. I mean, you have to kind of, you know, if there's no space. Create some space, bring your own seats. Exactly. And, and just, you know, become part of the, the process, you know. Did composing and directing the music of this project change you? If so, in what way? I think every time I do a project, I learn something new, either personally, on a deeper personal level. I know that when I wrote music for this film, I was, I got emotional in certain spots. And um, I remember knowing that like for instance frankie's story was important to a lot of people i knew that in my mind i had the music had to kind of have that shimmer and hope that she brought to it so in a way i i i wanted to um do good by her i guess you know by writing the music so um and one of the emotional moments for me was like when lauren farris the trans activist is sitting down with her i don't know if you remember that scene and they're talking and she's like, this is the moment where the world needs you. The music I wrote for, which is the hope theme under that is kind of like what I think um, resonates with Frankie and her light and, and the joy she brings to everybody she's trying to help. 
I think it changed me in a way where I wanted to make sure that anything I wrote contributed to her story, bring it, show its truth in a way. I didn't, it wasn't about me. And I was trying to basically write music that conveyed her love and her light and, and the story she shared with everybody. You've had a very successful career, uh, Nicholas. What advice would you give to the younger Nicholas uh, starting out learning to master the boring parts of playing the violin? I would like expand that not only to the violin, but also to um, when I was learning to compose using computers and digital audio workstations, be patient and learn as much as you can about technology because that's how the world is going now in terms of composition. Because um, gone are the days of <laughs> like John Williams where he writes with pencil and paper and then sits at the piano and plays it for a director. Like that, those days are, are ending because um, he's the only one now that does it. So learning technology and also being patient because a lot of people now, um, and even myself when I started off, I, people are impatient. They want things quickly and sometimes things you know, take time. It's like you're, you're planting a garden and you want everything to grow. It's not going to grow overnight. You have to cultivate it and nurture it, give it water, you know, and each day, month, year that passes, you know, you learn something new. So you want to make sure that you have patience, but also, you know, keep learning about different things and, and be open-minded. And that will help, I think, anyone's career. And that's pretty much advice for life too, not just composition, you know. What legacy do you want to leave behind? Oh, wow. That's, that's one I never thought about. <laughs> I think um, hopefully if my music speaks to just one person, I think that's a legacy enough. If it, if it touches somebody's heart somewhere, then I, I, can, I can leave this world happy. You know, It's one of those things that you do this because the joy of writing for music and music brings you um, this vitality that I don't think maybe other arts as well, but there's something about music itself that resonates with a lot of people. It's it's something abstract, so you can't touch it. You can't see it. You can only f listen and feel it. So it's one of those things that if it touches somebody, I think uh, I'll be happy. It, it did my job. Well, thank you very much. It's been an honor having you as a guest on Latinos Who Thrive, Nicholas. Thank you. It was a pleasure talking to you, Victor. And friends, we will have all of uh, Nicholas' uh, links in the show notes. And I urge you to go check it out. Uh, go see the documentary Run For More, because uh, this is really a heartwarming story of adversity, as many of us Latinos have had to face in our lives. And uh, you will be inspired by the story, as well as the music uh, from uh, famous composer Nicholas Repetto. That's all for today, my friends. Until next time, go out and thrive. <laughs>